Now we come back to our study of 1 Peter, so please turn your Bibles to Peter's epistle, the very first one of his. He wrote two of them. And uh, if you're searching, go almost all the way to the end of your Bible and then start backing up to the left, and you'll... You'll run into First Peter before you know it. It'll be before we're done with the sermon. I promise you. Now, in coming back to this study in First Peter, we are in a section that is so profound and so rich and deep that it is hard to limit each message like we have been doing, but I'm going to do my best to get it to you in as brief a way as I can. And I, when I say that, I mean what I mean by that this time is that in the section that we're in, there's so much theology almost in each word uh, that we're going to look at that I really mean it when I say that we have to kind of narrow ourselves. Now notice the title that I've given this section, The Creed of the Suffering Christ. Creed of the suffering Christ. Why did Jesus come down to suffer? Two words for us. Now, there is a sense in which he came to suffer for God. But there's also another sense in which he did it for us. And that's the one I want to cover this morning, I mean, this section in First Peter connects us to suffering in the deepest, most profound ways, in a way that we almost shouldn't be given the privilege of, and yet our Lord gives it to us. He said, what do you mean by that? He literally is going to take us to the cross and say, hey, I want you to see that there is a, a similarity, there's a connection into how Jesus suffered on the cross and how you should suffer. And I feel like in doing that, that's unbelievable. We're sort of in a section in, in with a thought that we, where we should take our the sandals, the shoes of our feet off and recognize the holy ground that we are about to tread on. And so Jesus came down to suffer... To help us to know how to suffer. It's incredible. But he did it for much more than that. And I hope to show you that here this morning. Listen. He did it to save us. He did it to save us. It's amazing that he could accomplish salvation for our souls. And a pattern for our living. All in one swoop. In one action. That was the only way. And in that salvation, we get the key to living life on this earth. Not just entrance for heaven. Listen, but thriving in the face of unjust suffering from this world. A world set on course by Satan. I realize I speak to people who, um, I know you have your own personal sufferings, whatever they be. Whatever they be. Right? I mean, it might be that, you know, for you, you are, you, you have a job that you say, well, this is just tough. And I experience suffering there. Maybe you uh, have 
Maybe you're, you're part of a school or something where there's, where there's that. Maybe it's the, the friends that now you're around. There are people that you're around where you experience that. Maybe it's personal suffering. Maybe there's people that don't understand you and you're trying to really live with that. Maybe you've been falsely accused by something of doing something or being something or being associated with something. And you're trying to follow Christ. Or maybe there's another group of people here. Maybe you've come and you're saying to yourself, you know, I've got to be honest, I have no idea what you're talking about. Because I don't suffer like that. I don't, maybe it is that you're not following Christ. And that's why you cannot identify with these sufferings. Wherever it is that you're at, I am really hopeful that as we work this through, you'll be able to see this text in our Lord in a way that's richer. So what's the creed of, of, of the suffering Jesus? What is his creed? To suffer unjustly is the pathway to glory. That's his creed. His creed is that it is okay to suffer unjustly as long as you are walking holy because it's the pathway to glory. That is his creed. Or if you want to make it more simple than that, pain for gain. How about that one? Pain for gain. I remember I used to always, you know, growing up, of course, you know, big sports guy. And so, you know, you kind of do the sport, whatever it is, football and all that was kind of my, my mine. And there was always that no pain, no gain type of deal. But I got to be honest, sometimes I scratch my head and say, man, we're doing all this stuff out here on the field. I'd like to not have so much pain anymore, even though I'd, I'd like to get straight to the gain, you know. I mean, you ever feel that way? It's like, can we just get the gain and without having the pain? And I think a lot of people these days live by that, want to have that as their motto. I think it's why so many of us think to ourselves, oh, how about we retire early? And let's, let's stop this nonsense of what that we call work, right? I mean, hey, you know, it, but, it, but because that's because we want the gain without the pain. But our Lord says, no, actually, the richest gain that you'll ever receive is going to be in the context of pain, in a kind of pain that is quite severe. It's not just about what you do, beloved, but how you do it, see. And so what we see is godly living in the face of an ungodly culture, and that is our example. This is how you live swimming against the stream, the world's stream. And you remember that word submission was such an important word too. That's our that's our word as believers for life wherever the Lord has put us. That's the key to spiritual impact is submission. Now we could talk about Jesus as our example, but there is another way to see Jesus, and that is as our expiation. That's just another word of saying atonement. Or if you want as our substitute. That's going to be the focus of this morning's message. It's the major thought in our text. That great doctrine of salvation called substitution. 
And we like to talk about doctrine a lot around here because, you know, sound doctrine produces sound living. You live as you believe. Uh, Paul said that in 2 Corinthians, I think it was chapter 4, verse 13, when he said, we believe, therefore we spoke. In other words, I didn't just say things. I never just said things. We don't just say things. Now, maybe we do, but eventually those things that we say get connected to the doctrine of our life. And that's when people say, oh, well, that's what he means. Or that's what she means. And so Peter connects how we suffer to Jesus as our shepherd. You could say as our guide or as our encourager, our caretaker. That's what we're going to learn here this morning. Jesus as our substitute and Jesus as our shepherd. In Isaac Watts' song, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, he has this line, Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when God the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. He died for man, the creature's sin. The key two words, for man, and what he meant was in man's place. In our place. Now substitution is probably the most important aspect of salvation when it comes to understanding what happened on the cross. It's very key. In fact, if you, if you don't have this word written down somewhere, write it down somewhere, substitution, so that you can remember it, so that you can go back, so that you can look at it, so that when somebody says, hey, what was the sermon about? It was about substitution. C.H. Spurgeon said this, Atonement by the blood of Jesus is not an arm of Christian truth. It is the heart of it. Spurgeon went on to say, If our Lord's bearing our sin for us is not the gospel, I have no gospel to preach. One thing I know, substitution, and one thing I do, preach it. End quote. That's, that's Spurgeon. I love it. Let's make it simple. If you're going to preach one thing with regards to the gospel, you say, what do I tell people? People ask me, hey, what is the gospel? Well, use that one word and then go from that one word and help them explain that substitution. Leon Morris, who wrote that classic, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, he put it this way. The atonement is the crucial doctrine of the faith. Unless we are right here, it matters not, it seems to me, what we are like elsewhere. End quote. We have to be right here. Now when we look at the gospel, the heart of it is this, that Jesus Christ has done something for us. It's the heart of the gospel. And you could say it this way, it is a, it is a, he has done something that we cannot do for ourselves, 
That is what we're talking about. That's the the gospel at the heart of it. It is an act of grace because it is something we desperately need but cannot get for ourselves at all. We cannot get it for ourselves. And as great as people might be and as great as we of things we might do. And there are some pretty amazing people out there, amazing unbelievers out there that have done some amazing things and have had some amazing inventions and have had some amazing sayings. But you line up all the unbelievers together and when you talk about getting to God, you might as well be trying to cross one end of the Grand Canyon with the other because that's what it is. And though every man might have his efforts and some of his jumps as he jumps, one man might jump and he jumps five feet and another man might jump ten feet and we're all applauding. Wow, that's amazing. But he fell to the doom of his death. And the other man, maybe he jumped 20 feet. And we said, there's no way that anybody can beat 20 feet. But the problem is every one of them will fall short. There is a bridge that needs to be crossed that we can't cross and we can't get to without Him, the great bridge maker, without Him doing it for us. He did it for us. Notice the for you statements in verses 21 to 25. Verse 21, Christ also suffered for you. Implied in verse 24, bore our sins in his body for you. In verse 25, shepherd and guardian of your souls when you were straying like sheep for you. The first one sets the tone, suffered for you so you can have an answer to your sins and to your suffering, the kind of suffering where it is unjust. Now, how did Jesus suffer for us? In his suffering, going to the cross, he accomplished actually three things for us to help us in our own suffering in this world. And to see it, we need to see the suffering of Christ in three ways. And let's look at the first one as we remind ourselves of what we've already learned. Number one, Christ, our picturesque standard. Jesus is the picture of how we are to suffer. Of how to do it. How quickly and easily we walk away from this and forget. Just go, keep going back to the, to, to the Lord Jesus. Man, I'm really going through it. Go back to Him. How did He suffer? He's even the standard or example of why we suffer. Now, he could have just given some sermons on suffering and just said, all right, remember that stuff, guys. There'll be a test. Back to your whole life will be a test, okay? Hope you remember it. He did more, though. He gave us steps to follow. Look at verse 21. Steps to follow. And you remember Peter is Jewish and he sticks close to the Old Testament. And so Peter says, Isaiah 53 said Jesus would come and be this for us. 
that's his main text. In fact, it is his main text from verse 21 all the way through verse 25. And I'm going to show you that. He is literally thinking of Isaiah 53 in every turn. Isaiah 53 said Jesus would come and be this for us. This kind of suffering for us. Sinless, no deceit in his mouth. James 3, if a man can tame his tongue, he's a perfect man. And I, well, I feel the weight of that every day, right? Do you, you think, oh man, do I say things I wish I would not have said. Or don't say the thing you really should be saying, right? If a man can tame his tongue, he is a perfect man. Well, you know what? I know one who did. Jesus did. He demonstrated he was a perfect man. And Peter tells us the clearest way to see that Jesus was perfect was to look at how he handled suffering unjustly. You know how it is. Somebody pushes you and your immediate reaction is to do what? Push back. And maybe you might grit your teeth and and say to yourself, all right, stay calm. You ever do that? Stay calm. Don't say anything. Maybe do a little countdown thing. Turn your way. Five, four, three, two, one. Get yourself a little calm or whatever. I don't know how, how you handle things, right? You start thinking different thoughts. That's not how our Lord was. And then eventually, of course, we, we just, you just, you can't take it anymore. They pushed you, you're going to push back. Peter tells us, Jesus didn't revile in return when he was falsely accused. And he gets that thought from Isaiah 53. He didn't utter any threats. See, what did he do? What does it say? He trusted the Father to defend him. Remember what he said to Pilate? We just, we just saw this this last week, week in flock. He was before Pilate. and Pilate says, do you not know I have authority to end your life or save it? Jesus said, yeah, you, you wouldn't have any authority unless the one from above had given it to you. Earlier, Jesus told Pilate, if I wanted to ask the Father to unleash myriads of angels at my defense, it could happen. But that's not the plan. And so he trusted the Father to defend him, to, to be his judge. If you are righteous, then you don't need to fear God's judgment, right? You don't need to fear anybody's judgment. If you're righteous, you say, well, how do you get righteous? Well, you need a substitute. And so there's a second way our Lord Jesus teaches us about how to suffer unjustly, seeing point number two, Christ as our perfect substitute. Christ as our perfect substitute. Verse 24. 
Jesus not only suffered to be an example, he suffered as our substitute. Look at it. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Boy, I tell you what, if there's a verse that you've ever wondered, what verse should I put on my refrigerator? Here it is. This is it. I'm telling you. This thing is so loaded, you'll, you'll, you'll spend the rest of this whole year just meditating on this one verse on your fridge. Okay? This is good stuff. Now, as we pointed out to you, Peter has Isaiah 53 on his mind. Now, listen to some verses from Isaiah 53 to help you understand what was on Peter's mind. Listen to this. This comes just straight from Isaiah 53. I wanted to read it to you because I wanted you really to see this connection. Our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions, for our iniquities, for our well-being. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. That was verses 4, 5, 11, 12. For us, bearing, carrying, doing something massive that we could not do for ourselves, that he had to do. And notice all throughout Isaiah 53, you see the for us statements. I think this is difficult for Americans. We are a people that like to do things for ourselves. As we get older, it gets more of a challenge. People see that there's help that's needed and say, here, let me help you. Let me do this for you. You say to yourself, no, I can handle it. I can do this. What is it about us that is that? For us. There's a great humility that happens, that has to be seen, that has to be embraced, that has to be understood with those two words for us. Now all of that is the core of this great Christian doctrine called substitution. The core of the doctrine of our salvation is that. That is what Leon Morris and Spurgeon and Isaac Watts were getting at. Or, if you want the the way the Bible, the New Testament says it, listen to these verses. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, what does it say, on our behalf. That's another way of saying for us. He say, whoa, whoa, whoa. So Jesus became sin? He say, I thought he was sinless. He is. The Father treated Jesus as though he was sin itself. It's unbelievable. 
How could that happen? How could that be? Listen, even though Jesus was not, nor ever did sin in any way, He treated Him. The reason why He treated Him that way is because Jesus became a substitute. How did He do that? We're going to find out here. Another very important verse in all of this, Galatians 3.13, so important, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse, what's it say next? For us. See? It's all over the Bible. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, I want you to hold on to that last part. That's going to become massively significant here in a moment. We're going to come back to it. But notice for us. He became a curse for us. We have sinned, therefore we are a curse to God. Right? You say, how, how come? Galatians 3.10. Just back it up a few verses. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's just a quote from, from the Old Testament. And what he's saying is if you don't obey every single part of the law of the Old Testament, you are cursed. That's the reason why that analogy of all those people trying to get to the other side of the Grand Canyon with their good works, with all their law performing and all their deeds is such a good analogy because it's not that there haven't been impressive people. It's just that they all fall short because nobody... The only way to get to, the, to, to cross that chasm is through perfection of deeds. Nobody has that. Just one sin, James 2.10, that's all it takes. That's all it takes to make you a sinner. And the question is not, have you sinned? The question is, well, are you a sinner? Oh, okay, well, let's see. I don't know. I mean, I do, I'm pretty decent. I mean, I've really been so helpful to people and everything, and I really, I try my best, and I feel like I'm a pretty sincere person and everything. Okay, okay. But uh, what makes you a sinner? James 2.10, just one sin. Oh, how about this one? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does it take to fall short of the glory of God? One sin. See, that's that chasm. One sin, just one. He said, man, I mean, I wish you would have preached this way. You make me feel bad, like, I've, like I'm some criminal. Like I've done something horrendous. I like how Tony Evans put it one time. He said, one white lie is open scandal in heaven. But we sure do like to just shape things, don't we? Well, it wasn't a lie, it was a white one white one. Are you kidding me? A lie is a lie. I don't want somebody to tell me that it was the good kind of poison, right? Don't worry about it, you know. Substitution 
says he took our place. And what that means is that there are only two and only two ways to pay for sins. Either he, excuse me, either we pay it or he pays it. Augustus template, he said it this way, payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding Savior's hand and then again at mine. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, until God can be unjust and demand two payments for one debt, he cannot destroy the soul for whom Jesus died. Either we pay or he pays, and it cannot be both. Once Jesus volunteered to be our payment, that settled it. It was done. Now, by the way, there are many so-called Christians and so-called theologians who reject the teaching of vicarious penal substitution. You say, huh, what? Those are, those are, those are not you know, one-cent words anymore, right? Moving into the, you know, moving upstairs. Okay, vicarious, something that's done for you on your behalf. Penal, that is taking care of the penalty, that which is against you that which the crime that you've committed and you remember only one sin is open crime it's crime in heaven you're a criminal in heaven you're wanted substitution in your place that Jesus paid the penalty of our sin by becoming our substitute there are people that cannot embrace that they cannot believe that they will not Adopt that. In fact, two of, of these guys, and you can look them up yourselves. One guy's by the name of Stephen Chalk, C H A L K E, and another by the name of N T Wright. And they believe the teaching that says God poured out His wrath on His Son is equivalent to cosmic child abuse. They completely misunderstand 1 Peter 2.24 and Isaiah 53 and many other passages that teach that Jesus willingly died as a substitute for our wrath, for all our sins, all of them, to pay the penalty for them all. So listen, what substitution teaches is this. Jesus was punished in our place on the cross, bearing punishment. That's what we mean by wrath. That he was bearing punishment. That's what bore our sins, by the way, is talking about in our text. Bore our sins. Now back to 1 Peter 2.24. Let's see if we can walk this through. And he himself, those are the first three words. In in the Greek, it's emphatic. He, He did this himself. He himself. No one made him do this. He himself did this. This is why we call it voluntary. Willing. That's very important because we sometimes think 
of the cross as being this cruel punishment, and it was, but cruel punishment done by people to Jesus as a victim. And here he was living this sinless life. And how sad that they did this great injustice against him. And all of that is true, but it doesn't really paint the picture. As though he went to the cross against his will. It was voluntary. Hebrews 10.9, Behold, I have come to do your will, Jesus says to the Father. Chalk and N.T. Wright say, God the Father would never punish his own son. How cruel and mean, they say. But what if the son willingly went to receive that? First Peter 2 and Hebrews 10 say, The son willingly took that on. Isaiah 53.10, listen to this. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Oh boy, that seems to say the opposite of what those guys are saying. Who's right? I'll take Isaiah. I'll take him. I'll stand on where he's at, right? See, these guys chalk and into right people like them, they're trying to understand the cross logically. And this goes beyond that. Because they have a hard time saying, well, why would the Father do that to the Son? He wouldn't do that. He loves the Son. Well, to rescue sinners. He did it for us. That demonstrates the extent of the love, doesn't it? I mean, in some little measures, we we kind of experience this a little bit. You know, you find out somebody has done something for you that has great cost. You did that for me? Wow, that's awfully nice of you, right? Well, what happened at the cross was not just nice. Putting up the grief. Why? Because Jesus did it willingly for us in our place. Because of John 129, Jesus came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came for that. And so in 1 Peter 2.24, those first few words, and he himself tells us that Jesus came willingly, voluntarily. Now, what that tells us is that Jesus didn't come as some martyr. He didn't come as some victim of man's cruelty. He didn't come as a mercenary. Jesus came with his one purpose to be our substitute. And that's why we don't stop at saying that Jesus was an example for our suffering. Yes, he was that. But you have to go further. And Peter goes further. He was more than that. In fact, Peter's going to say this again in 1 Peter 3.18. Look at it for just a moment. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, here it is, the just 
for the unjust. That's just another way of saying for you. Do you see it? Jesus died as a substitute for the unjust. That's in our place. We're the unjust, right? That's us. And the reason why you would not allow the Lord to save you is because you don't believe you're the unjust. You think that there's a little bit of just in you. How does all this work? Jesus took the place. He took on the weight of our sins. He took the place. And that, by the way, that, that's, that's the idea of this weight. He took the weight, the place of unjust people. All right, Peter goes a little bit deeper to figure out how this works. Verse 24, look at it. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. No. What does it mean when it says he bore our sins? Some versions say carried our sins. And that's a, that's a legitimate translation. And actually, uh, I was reading about this. This is fascinating. Something because the word for cross, and I noticed the word for cross there, that's actually not a great translation. The word for cross is actually, you could, you could translate it tree, you could even translate it wood, and wood would actually be the very best translation. And they think that what this verse is saying is that Jesus carried our sins. And by the way, this word carried is used of priests that carried the offering to the altar. And so they picture Jesus carrying our sins like a priest to the wood like an altar and placing them there as an offering. Colossians 2 says he nailed them all to the tree. So you say, oh, that sounds, that sounds good. Sounds like what it's saying. That's not what it's saying. Jesus didn't offer our sins to God on the cross. Listen, he offered himself. It's a big difference. He died for our sins. He carried our sins with him. That's why it says he himself, with him on the cross. Don't get it wrong. I mean, we get it, when we get it wrong, we create all kinds of strange views. As though he's doing some kind of offering and throwing them over there and seeing whatever would stick onto the wall. And hopefully that, you know, God could take care of that. No. The punishment was from the Father to the Son for the sins. Now to get that, we have to go back into the Old Testament to understand this. Why do we have to do that? Because once again, Peter gets his understanding of what it meant to bear the sins. What does it mean to bear the sins? I mean, were they, did they somehow get infused into his, into his body? And What is this? 
he takes his understanding of the Old Testament in that because that's what he knew. That's what the Holy Spirit wanted him to teach. To be consistent with the Old Testament scripture, right? Now let me show you this here, and I'm going to take it to you a handful of passages so I think to help you get this thought. Remember Numbers 14? The Old Testament talked about Israel bearing sin. Bearing sin. In, in, in Numbers 14, now this is uh, has to do with the history of Israel. And Israel had uh, really become a people. The, the inauguration of the nation was there in Exodus chapter 19. And they become a people. And they're God's people. And they're following him. But not all of them are really believers. Some of them live in their unbelief. And Israel was getting close to entering the promised land. And so you remember this, Moses sends spies into the land. And they're going to do that. He sends them there into the land to kind of inspect it and see what are we getting into? What's all this about? So that we can have an idea of what to expect and how to go in there and, and, you know, what's the work? Well, they came back and they said, there's no way that we can defeat the enemies there. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. They're going to kill us. The people are huge and they're powerful. It just can't happen. And Joshua and Caleb said, what? Our God is greater than our enemies, but Israel wouldn't listen. You remember that? So the Lord gets angry with Israel and her constant unbelief. And so we pick it up in Numbers 14.33. Listen to this. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. Whoa. What's that saying? God's going to wipe out the, this generation and raise up a new one. That's what he's saying. Because, and it's going to take 40 years. And that's because you didn't believe him. Verse 34. A new generation of Jews are going to go in. Verse 34. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days... For every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. Now that, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, is our word for bear, to carry. What does it mean? It means to suffer punishment. Punishment for not trusting the Lord. Ryan last week was at Ezekiel 18. You have the same thing there too. Verse 20, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor the father bear the punishment for the the son's iniquity. Again, punishment for your own evil. So to bear sin is to endure punishment for the guilt of that sin. You see it? It is to bear punishment. Again, back to Numbers chapter 18. He gives instructions to the priests, to Aaron, all about the priesthood. He says, you and your sons and your father's household with you shall bear the guilt in connection with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear the guilt in connection with your priesthood. See, what does that mean? It means when you go against what the Lord wants in your job as priests... God is going to punish you. That's what it means. Just keep in mind, there are 
specific rules that you must be mindful to carry out as priests. And if you don't, God's going to punish you for it. You remember Leviticus 10, right? I mean, Nadab and Abihu. So the Lord, he, he did that very thing. And he's just reminding them, you bear the punishment for violating what this priesthood requires. And so it's the same idea. To bear sin, then, is to suffer the punishment for, for the wrongdoing. And same thing you see later on in verse 23, okay? Now, there's an interesting one, and it's in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 4. And often our Lord would use Ezekiel as an illustration of his, the sermon. It was real fascinating. One time he had to dig under a wall and so forth. and He's always using him as these illustrations of, of a truth to the nation of Israel. Here he has one in Ezekiel 4, verse 4. Listen, as for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You shall bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on it. Now, what's it saying? It's talking about consequences for Israel's rebellion, right? This is what happens when you have unrepented iniquity. You bear it. You face the punishment for it. That's the message he's trying to get across to Israel. All right, let's go back to 1 Peter 2.24. I want you to see this stuff. He bore our sins in his body. Jesus took the punishment for our sins in his body. You say, why? Does that mean that Jesus became a sinner? No. It means he was given the penalty for the sin. He didn't commit any sin, and that is right, so he had to be willing to bear it, to take it, to carry it, and face the punishment for it. You say, so the punishment is physical death. Is that what it is? I mean, didn't... Jesus say on the cross, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is physical death, but it is also what? Spiritual death. So it's both. And I think the point is that he was punished for what we should have been punished for, right? The penalty of our sins that we deserved against a holy God. Now, notice too it says in his body. Why does it say he bore the sins in his body? Hebrews 2 and Philippians 2 tell us that he had to take on flesh. He had to feel it. The only way to experience this punishment is by having an actual physical body. That's the answer. When people say... Well, why did God have to come to this earth? That's why. It is the only way to experience this punishment. Romans 8.3 says that he had a physical body in the likeness of sin, just like ours. Likeness. It wasn't sin, but it looked like it. And then Jesus told his men many, many, many times that he had to be crucified, to be lifted up, right? 
remember in our, in our flock lessons last week at John 8, 30, 18, 32. John 18, 32. To remind you of it. In John 18, 32, this is Jesus before Pilate. Well, but these are the Jews that say we're not permitted to put anyone to death. And so they go to Pilate because they want Pilate to put him to death. And the verse 32 gives the commentary to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. So he was always talking about that. John three fourteen, John twelve thirty three. they all say to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So he had to come to have a physical body that there might be a punishment on the cross. You say, why? Oh man, I wish I, I wish there was more time here, but I'm just gonna give you this short version here. I'm trying to really keep my mind myself to this deal here. Let me just make a quick tie. Alright. See that word cross in the NAS? Unfortunate translation. You should say wood. The, the word for cross is strakes. It's it's um, it's a very particular word that meant cross. The very cross that was used for crucifixion. The word used here. There's another word, by the way, for tree. But the word used here is xylon, x y l o n, and it means wood. This would be the only place, by the way, in the New Testament where this word Zylon is translated cross. It's just wood. See, why is that important? Because I believe that Peter, in his very Jewish way, is thinking about Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. Listen to what that says. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree that is on on, on wood, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is cursed of God. Peter says, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the wood. He could have said tree, but the wood came from the tree, see. And by doing that, Jesus was treated like that Deuteronomy 21 criminal worthy of death. And we know he wasn't worthy of death. And all Peter then is doing is agreeing with Paul in Galatians 3, where it says in verse 13 that Jesus became a curse for us in our place. Jesus had to be hanged on wood. It had to happen. And the only way to accomplish that would be to be born at happened to be born at the right time. You realize that 
Crucifixion didn't always exist. Crucifixion came about at a very specific time in history. And in order to accomplish, to be all of that, in what Deuteronomy 21 said, you'd have to wait until crucifixion was a thing. And by the way, even though it was a thing, it didn't be, it, we could go narrow, even more narrow now. Then you had to wait till a time in Israel's history where Israel did not have the right of execution that way. And the right of execution would be to be hanged on wood. Huh. That's what Galatians 4.4 means when he says born at the right time. The fullness of time. Where this was, where there was this capital punishment by crucifixion applied in Israel and as a sinless man in our place. All of that came to be at just the right time. This is just incredible. I mean, now why did Jesus do that? Why a substitutionary death? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 24. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is incredible and very clear. Will you notice a few things? Will you notice that it doesn't say that he died so that we might go to heaven? It doesn't say that he died so that we might even, you know, have love or joy or peace or anything like that. It says so that we might have two things. So that we might have death and life. Do you realize this is, these are the two most important things for a Christian? So what are the two most important things for a Christian to understand about Christianity? Death and life. So what do you mean by that? There is, you must have a death. You must have a life. What do you mean? Death to sin, life to righteousness. And here, the righteousness that he's talking about is not forensic righteousness. That's important, but that's not what he's talking about here. In fact, the word death isn't even a good translation. It's fascinating how this all came to be. The the word death, it literally means separation or alienation. There's a different word for death. In fact, actually the word, I came to find in, in studying this word, it actually means to cease existing. We might cease to exist where sin is. See it? He was punished in our place so that we would have a separation from our sins. That's what it's saying. And so that we would have a righteous life. And again, I don't believe here he is talking about our position. He's talking about our practice. 
the purpose of substitution then, will you mark it, is to transform us? It's to change us. It's to regenerate us. It is to make us alive, away from sin and towards righteousness. To transform us from sinners to saints. We don't make ourselves this way. He does. Isn't that exciting? I'll tell you what, I would have absolutely no interest in this. And, and I can tell you, that my, my, my testimony, to, I, there was a, a time in my life, three or four years, and I grew up, I mean, I'll tell you what, I went to church, Catholic church, it's called Mass, okay? So I went to Mass every, every week, every week doing the deal. Every week. I was not one of those guys that kind of went sort of to Mass. I went every week. In fact, I, sometimes I feel that way when I, I read like Philippians 3 where Paul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews and so forth. I really tried to be a Catholic of Catholics. I really did. It was so important to me. Every week. You do the confession deal, I did confession. Confirmation, I was confirmed. But the problem is and I knew it. I could not be, there weren't enough sacraments for me to follow, for me to be right with God. Couldn't get right with Him. It only lasted for about five minutes after I left the confession booth, right? The poor priest said, I don't know what I'm going to do with this guy. He was our substitution we might be changed. He's talking about our practice here. This isn't just a forensic point. It is a, it is a freedom to live in forgiveness point. It's not just a justification point. It is a sanctification point. If you wanted to compare it to Romans, this is Romans 6 and 7. Died to sin doesn't reign anymore. Not, it, sin is no longer the home base of operations anymore. Sin is not the master anymore. I should never make the statement, I just can't help myself, I do it, and it's just nothing to stop me from doing it. Are you kidding me? If you are in Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Slaves of Christ instead. And, you know, you get the Romans 7, and the point is that we hate our sin now. We're different. And it's, so it's a point about how, because Jesus is our substitute, we have been changed. He changed us. You can even translate the word die to mean depart from. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might depart from sin and live to righteousness. might love righteousness and live in it. It's a change of pattern, change of direction kind of statement. We're in the flow of righteousness now. That's where we are most at home, see. And that's the reason why a person can come to me and tell me, hey, you know, uh, seems like you were a little bit cranky today. Seems like you were complaining. And you know what happens when, when, they, when they do that? 
as a believer, I'm swept away to Philippians 2. Why? Because it says, do not complain. And then then I come back to that believer and I say, brother, thank you. Thank you. You reminded me of who I am in Christ and what it is that I love. He suffered a sin-bearing punishment to get you in this flowing direction of living life. And we live it right there as citizens in this world before everyone. Notice another thing there in verse 24. For by his wounds you were healed. Will you notice the past tense? This is back to Isaiah 53. It's actually verse 5. And the Greek word is mopos. And it means the scarring or marks left after the flogging. Remember earlier in verse 18, he talked about house servants or, or house slaves. We're, we're like those house slaves. Those slaves will be marked up by all the whippings. Now is this saying that Jesus was whipped and scarred so that we might physically be healed? Now before I tell you that this is actually spiritual, you're like, no, you're going to say it's spiritual. Well, I am, but it's more than that. There is a physical element to this kind of healing. Read it yourself. Matthew 8, 16 and 17. Jesus, it's connected. Isaiah 53, 5 is connected to physical healing. But listen carefully as I say this. Matthew uses Isaiah 53 to support Jesus physically healing people. Someday, we will be physically healed with perfect bodies. You know the reason why I know that he wasn't connecting that to everybody becoming a Christian and getting healed on this earth? Because it stopped happening. Stopped happening. Jesus left, apostles done, stopped happening. If it was that important to our Lord Jesus, who, who's Matthew 16 said he promised he's going to build his church, he clearly would not have let that happen. No. And by the way, the word for healing here, James 5 uses it to connect to spiritual healing. But I believe there's a physical part to this, and I think this is the point of Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, and that is this, that in 1 Corinthians 15, that someday there will be a perfect healing that's going to happen. And in fact, you could say that all the healings that Jesus did was just simply to give us a preview of the permanent ones that were to come in the future. Isn't that good? But I believe Peter's point is spiritual healing. You say, how do I know that? Because Peter puts it in the past tense. If you have Jesus' death, past tense, as your substitution for sin, then you have the healing, past tense. You put all this together and what you have is that sometimes it is our Lord's will that you suffer and that you rest in the spiritual healing that you have in Christ as a believer. It's an incredible point. So, beloved, at salvation, we've been healed. Did you know that? Isn't that good? 
All the scars that sin had ravaged in your spiritual life have been healed by His scars. And that's why Paul could say in Galatians 6.17, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus, the scars of Jesus, literally. Now, why is Peter saying this? Why is Peter making a point about Christ as our substitute? I'll tell you this in a moment as when we, when we close it all down. Let me make one last, give you one last way to understand suffering unjustly in this life. You have to see point number three, Christ, our patient shepherd. All right. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus is the patient shepherd. So what do we need? What do we need when we are suffering unjustly? To be reminded that Jesus is our patient shepherd. Why? Because we will go back and forth from perseverance to complaining to even wanting to give up when others revile or criticize you for no good reason. You know why the Lord had to be our shepherd? What does it say there in verse 25? We continually stray from him like sheep. Now, I think that is as the important thing is he, he that is a salvation point. It continues in our living as believers, but but you have to get the order right. If our Lord Jesus wouldn't have provided the example for us and the sacrifice and then the sacrifice, we wouldn't be in his fold to be cared for. He showed us. Salvation first, then shepherding. That's the point. Before we were saved, we were straying sheep. Now that he saved us, we go back to it and need to be reminded we're straying sheep, right? We we, we need to be reminded that used to be our life, moving away from where we need to be. And the picture is this. Jesus bore it all so we could return back to him. And when we come back to him, we find that he has two things for us, shepherd and guardian for our souls. And in the context here, he's talking about our unsaved condition in that past. By the way, that's what an unbeliever is like. Aimless, lost, no direction, blind, wandering. Because of the substitution of Jesus Christ bearing our sins, you have turned to him for salvation and life and direction. How have you turned to Jesus like a shepherd and like a guardian of your soul? Why does Peter call Jesus this? Isaiah 53. Matthew 9.36, Jesus seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd and so forth. That's how Peter would understand. That's how he always understood Jesus, was as a shepherd. John 10, remember that? I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays out his life for the sheep. I know my own. They know me. They hear my voice. They follow me. By the way, why is it important that Jesus tell them that he's a good shepherd? 
What does Psalm 23 say? The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is saying he's the Psalm 23 shepherd. Ezekiel 34 and 37, the Lord will come. When Messiah comes, the Lord will come as shepherd. Messiah is God come down in the flesh to save us like a shepherd gathering lost sheep. Notice too, he's guardian of our souls. Episcopos. It means overseer, one who sees over the whole group, who guards them, who brings loving management to the poor sheep. Shepherd is Jesus' title. Guardian is his function. And later on, he even calls him that in 1 Peter 5, 4. One other side note here. He says returned. You've returned. The word is epistrepho, and it, and it means to turn. It means to, it doesn't mean return like, oh, you once were there, you backslid, and now you came back. The word literally means to have a 180. Before Christ, we were trying to shepherd our own souls. And we were the overseer of our souls. The fact that we needed to turn away from that to Christ tells me we were doing a bad job at it. So get the message here, beloved. We are horrible shepherds. We care about ourselves only and we don't even do a good job of that. Listen, that's what makes us strayers. Notice two souls deep inside the real you. The true you was lost, was wayward, was wandering and aimless, going nowhere fast. And you needed to turn. And the turn here is to turn from sin to Christ. All right, let's put this all together. How are all three of these descriptions of Jesus connected? Chapter 2, verse 15. It's God's will that you suffer. Make sure you... It is doing right. Why? Because you'll silence the critics. Why is that important? So that God can save them. How? When they witness how you suffer. How should you suffer? As a stranger in this world, abstaining from worldly lust. As a citizen in this world, submitting to authorities. As a servant before this world, bearing with unjust suffering, patiently enduring it. Now, how can you do that? Like Christ, who is the standard for how to do that. But more than an example, Jesus suffered for you to give you, verse 24, power. And in becoming your Lord, he became your shepherd and guardian of your souls. So when you struggle and even fail, you can come back to him to get back to where you need to be in that suffering. And so what he is saying is that Jesus called you and saved you to be an overcomer in life that way. Now let me end. I want to end with uh, one verse. Mark, mark it down. Revelation 12, verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony And they did not love their life even when faced with death. How do you overcome suffering even 
the strongest suffering that Satan might bring. This is talking about Satan's bringing us three ways. The blood of the Lamb. That's your creed, what you believe. The gospel. The word of your testimony. That's your character. Who you are. The denial of your life. That's your cost. He says... They did not love even their life when faced with death. You care about their life. You get to the point where you don't care about your life, you can suffer anything. Right? Are you willing to hate your life and to see it as nothing? Well, I had a lot to say. (laughs) Uh, Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word and we just want to live with what it says. And um, oh Lord, thank you for being this kind of Savior. Thank, thank you for being this substitute of ours. We pray, Lord, that we will live in light of these things and see you as the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Forgive us for straying. Thank you for being our patient shepherd, our perfect substitute in the picture of the standard of how we should live. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.